and they had a great, uh, yeah, is that teachers clapping? It is, and administrators, of course. So uh, Cindy was doing a little dance earlier too. That's good. Um, we are uh, celebrating a great year. We had great uh, time Sunday morning recognizing 52 graduates and then 66 GCA in church and then 66 GCA graduates um, that afternoon. And uh, the Lord is moving. We had a couple of um, young adults pray to receive Christ this Lord's Day, which was very exciting. In fact, one of our young ladies who uh, we were celebrating her baptism on Sunday, she'll be getting baptized this Sunday here. So that's a wonderful thing. Uh, we are going to be ending this series for a, a season, and then we'll be coming back to it. I don't, can't tell you exactly when that season is, because in the fall... We're going to be doing something different, and next Wednesday night at 5 o'clock, around 5, you can start coming. You can come a little later if you want, but there'll be food trucks here, and then we will have um, our first Grace-tastic Wednesday night, where Pastor Mike Floyd's going to be leading, and that will be at GSM. So it will not be in here. Food trucks outside, GSM building, and we will give you more information on that this coming week, but that will be next Wednesday night, and then each week... Different pastors will be leading, and they promised me it's going to be fun and engaging, and we're going to see how fun it gets. So it should be very good. But we're going to look, I'm going to try to get through two of these tonight, and we'll almost have gone through all the liturgical church traditions. We will have to sort of leave Methodism, Methodist, until next time. I'm going to try to get through Anglicans and Presbyterians this evening. So let's see if we can do that. And again, if you're just tuning in, I have to paint with a super broad brush, so my apologies to some of our Anglican or Episcopalian and our Presbyterian friends. I realize that in 45 minutes or so, I can't do it all when it comes to explaining uh, your particular group, so I'll do the best I can to be accurate, and I promise that we'll be faithful to the study and what we know to be true about these different groups, although there are many varieties and offshoots, okay? So the Anglican Church is also known as what? Uh, what other name would the Anglican Church go by? Do you guys know the Church of what? Good, good. The Church of England. And so when you hear Anglican, you often think Church of England. The Americanized version of this which is a part of the Anglican Church. Most Anglicans in America, for lack of a better way of putting that, are actually called what? Good, Episcopalian, right? I won't spell it all out, but they are Episcopalian. And so let's talk about the founding of the Anglican Church. You remember King Henry VIII? We've talked about him before. He was declared head of the Church of England, and I gave you a little hint as to why last time. His first wife was Catherine of Aragon, and Catherine of Aragon bore him one child. That child happened to be a daughter. Um, guess what King Henry wanted? A son, and so he wanted to have that marriage annulled. Uh, they had been married quite a while, so it would be kind of a strange annulment. We would say divorce, but he wanted that marriage annulled by the Roman Catholic Church, and guess what the Pope said? No. We've had a child with her. The answer is no. And so he said, okay, we don't need you, Mr. Pope. I'll be the head of the church. 
And so he becomes the head of the Church of England. It's a little more complicated than that, quite frankly, but I'm giving you history in a nutshell. So you have, uh, in 1549, Thomas Cranmer produced the first book of common prayer for the Anglican Church. Now, Thomas Cranmer was an English reformer. He was a leader in the English Reformation. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. You've all heard of Canterbury, right? So he's the Archbishop there uh, in England. And so that's sort of how things get going with the Church of England. And so what we see here is an offshoot of the Catholic Church, as we talked about last time with Martin Luther, the Lutheran Church, an offshoot of the Catholic Church. What we have today, somewhere around 80 to 85-ish million adherents, about 2 million in the United States. It's really difficult sometimes to count because you'll get people putting things on a census that Maybe they went once in their life, maybe their parents were Anglican, maybe their grandparents, uh, maybe they have an Anglican church in their community. So for the most part, we're pretty close in saying 80, maybe 85 million, and about 2 million in the U.S. It's very interesting because it's almost identical to Presbyterians. You'll see that number in a few minutes. It's almost identical, except that in America, again, you don't have this language being used very often. It's more Episcopalian. Okay, so let's talk about their beliefs about Scripture. Anglicans will believe that Scripture contains truth that is necessary for salvation and is the primary norm for faith but must be interpreted in light of tradition and reason. What might be a problem with that statement? If tradition is the lens through which we interpret Scripture, the problem we have is that what if our tradition's wrong? What if, what if just because we've always done it that way doesn't necessarily mean it aligns with the Word of God? And so there is a problem here, and there are some tensions within the modern Anglican Church and the modern Episcopalian Church with how do we actually interpret the Bible. The canon is exactly as ours, 39 Old Testament and 27 New Testament books. The Apocrypha, remember those secret writings, deuterocanonical writings, they are considered um, books to be respected, books to be studied, but they're certainly not viewed as Scripture. Let's quickly, true or false, go through their beliefs about God. True or false, one Creator, Lord of all, existing eternally as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yeah, true. That's right on point. That's biblical. Let's go through these quickly. Jesus, is he, is he the eternal Son incarnate? Yep. Fully God, fully man? Yep. Conceived and born of the Virgin Mary? Yep. Died on the cross for our sins? Yep. Rose bodily from the grave? Ascended into heaven? Will come again in glory to judge us all? Looks good to me. The Christology is sound in that area. What about salvation? Christ suffered and died as an offering for sin, freeing us from sin and reconciling us to God. Sounds good to me. This one's going to slow us down just a minute. We share in Christ's victory when, in baptism, we become living members of the church, believing in him and keeping his commandments. Yes or no? No, what you have here is, again, a part of a work connected to salvation, the work of baptism. Even if mom or dad are bringing me as an infant 
and I'm participating in paedo-baptism, unbeknownst to me as an infant, that that is a work of salvation. We are going to see, once we hit Presbyterianism just in a minute, we're going to see how that begins to shift away. Many of your liturgical, Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, uh, Anglican churches do tie baptism in. Now, I happen to have some great Episcopalian friends. They don't hold this belief. They do not believe that they or their children are saved in baptism or Christ's victory is secured in baptism. They don't believe that the church saves them. They don't believe even that they are saved by keeping the commandments of God. They do believe they're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So not all Anglicans or Episcopalians would actually believe that. What about after death? The souls of the faithful are purified as needed. Now one thing you'll find is that in Catholic teaching, what would we call that? Purified as needed. What would we call that? Yeah, going to purgatory. Anglicans are absolutely opposed to using that language. They will not use the word purgatory, but the more you dig into Anglican theology and say, well, now what do you mean by purified as needed? They'll say, ah, it's just what we said, purified as needed. So they refuse to use the language of the Catholic Church, but in reality, the concept is very similar. Though it's not in a particular place, somehow, when we die, the souls of the dead go th may need to go through a purification process in order to have full communion with God. Then at Christ's return, they're raised to fullness of eternal life in heaven. The second part I have no real issue with, except... It almost seems as like the souls of the faithful aren't going straight to heaven. We'll see a difference again with Presbyterians and with a lot of the other groups, including Baptists. And so this is never fully explained as far as my study told. And so they just don't want to use the word purgatory because the Anglicans and the Catholics didn't get along so well when this split occurred. And then those who reject God face eternal death, which is true, and, and there is a belief in hell within, within the Anglican church. The church, according to Anglicans, is the body of Christ, whose unity is based upon apostolic succession of bishops going back to the apostles, of whom the bishop of Rome is one of many. Now, let's make sure we're clear on some language here. Who is the bishop of Rome? The Pope. Don't let that confuse you. The Pope, by non-Catholic, even Catholic tradition, uh, by Catholic and non-Catholic tradition, the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. Like Catholicism, there's a general belief that there is an apostolic succession. By apostles, we mean those who had seen the risen Savior and those who were sent. Apostello means to send in Greek. The sent ones in the time of Jesus. And so from apostolic successions, they believe the bishop of Rome has some legitimacy, but he's not the head of the church. That ha has to happen in England. For, so it's very, um, it's very much nationalistic when it came to America, because obviously many of our earliest settlers were English. When it came to America, the settlers coming... Many of them adopted similar thinking, but of course there's this friction with, without um, representation and all of the, the, the desire for religious freedoms. You had some that, that broke off into other religious uh, traditions, 
And then you had some that said, no, 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 we want to stay connected to the Church of England, the Anglican Church, but we're going to, the language begins to change. So we're going to be Episcopalian. They do believe in one holy Catholic, little c, universal, and apostolic church. This fundamentally differs from most of your non-liturgical churches. How? I'll just give it to you in our church. We believe that people are called of God individually to lead and to serve. Servant leaders, pastors, um, deacons, that that is a call of God. But we're not necessarily saying there's some type of apostolic succession that I could trace my lineage back to those original apostles. So it's a little different way of thinking. When they say Catholic, again, lowercase, just means universal. Capital, it has to do with the Catholic Church or the Roman Catholic Church headed by the Pope. The Anglican community, uh, a, a communion rather, is part of the church whose unity worldwide is represented by the Archbishop of Canterbury. We talked about him a little while ago. Um, and so the church in the USA, only the Episcopal, if we just separate out, um, and by the way, Canterbury is about 55 miles east-southeast of London. So it's not very far from London, England. Um, but if we just sort of separate this out, again, this statement, I don't want you to press it too hard. You'll find people in the United States that would identify themselves as Anglican. You'll find people in the United States that will identify themselves as Episcopalian, but they are related with the mother organization, the umbrella organization known as the Anglican Church. They view sacraments as outward visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. Infants and older converts are made part of the church in baptism. Other than the infant line that we would say, no, you have to believe, and then you, through belief, by grace through faith in Christ alone, you become part of the family of God, and in believer's baptism, you can become part of the family of faith uh, as far as the church body, but they're saying, no, they're made part of the church in baptism. They also believe Christ, body, and blood are really present in communion. They refuse to use language like transubstantiation or even consubstantiation. You just won't find that language in the literature. It's really very, very close to what Catholics say or kind of what Lutherans say. They really don't believe that the body and the blood totally take over the wine and the bread, but they do believe they're very present with them. And so again, if you were an Anglican priest and you were serving communion, you would make sure that all of that communion was consumed, all of the bread, all of the wine. Members of the Anglican Church are free to accept or reject the Catholic, doc Catholic doctrines of Mary. I know some uh, Anglican Episcopalian friends that venerate Mary, that will pray to and through Mary. I know some that don't. And so that's sort of a free-for-all, if you will. The Book of Common Prayer I mentioned uh, from the original Archbishop of Canterbury after the creation of the Anglican Church. That's sort of the norm for their liturgy. So they'll read their prayers many times. And this is, of course, very different from the Catholic Church. Priest may marry. So... 
Congratulations on that. Other beliefs and practices. In, the 19, in 1976, the Episcopal Church approved the ordination of women. So that seems very, very far ahead of where uh, some groups have been in America. But this is interesting. In 2009, the Episcopal Church approved the ordination of gay bishops and allowed bishops to bless same-sex unions. Now, have there been splinter groups that have come away from the mainline group? Remember what we said about mainliners. Have there been groups that have come away? Yes. Yes, there have. In fact, in the U.S., again, most Anglicans belong to what we call the Episcopal Church. But you do have some conservative splinter groups, okay? You have the Reformed Episcopals. You have the Anglican Church of North America or in North, North America. These would, would lean much further right. And so the idea of maybe uh, ordaining homosexual bishops or allowing gay marriage um, or gay union, it, depending on whether you're talking pre-2015 or post-2015 uh, with the SCOTUS verdict. So I, I do want you to know not everybody within the Anglican Church, not everybody within the Episcopal Church would hold to those types of things. But those are a few examples. And yes, you do have some much smaller but more conservative splinter groups. Okay, that being said, by curiosity, how many of you guys personally are friends with some Episcopalians that you know that you know well? Anybody? A few of you? Several of you? Good. Now let me ask this. How many of you are personally friends with some Presbyterians? Yeah, quite, yeah, quite a few more of you. Okay. So I, I think this is why I want to get here tonight because I do think in probably in this area in particular, we would be more connected to Presbyterians if you're from here. If you're from other parts of the country, some of these other traditions would be more prevalent. But let's talk about Presbyterianism, the Presbyterian Church. What we find is that John Calvin writes an incredibly important work of the Protestant Reformation. It's actually a multi-volume work, in 15, published in 1536, called Institutes of the Christian Religion. There are a lot of things you and I would read in there, and we'd nod and we'd say, yep, agree, 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 that sounds right. But then you have some um, documents, we're calling them standards, Westminster Standards, that begin to unpack specific teachings. The Westminster Standards is a collective name for the documents drawn up by the Westminster Assembly, okay? And these, this happens from 43 to 49, so 1643 to 1649. You've heard of some of these, the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, a directory of worship. What is that anyway when we talk about a catechism? What do I mean when I say the shorter catechism and the longer catechism? Well, Calvin in many ways had a very structured way of thinking. And those who would later start Presbyterianism, Presbytery would be kind of structure, Presbutero is a Greek word used interchangeably with episkopos and poimen that has to do with bishop, elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, presbytero. The, the presbytery is sort of a structure, a form of government. And what they wanted to do was they said, we need to teach children, and we need to teach new believers, and we even need to teach maturing believers. What do we believe and why? 
And so very often a catechism is just a summary or an exposition of doctrine that serves as a learning introduction to a particular tradition. Our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is not a catechism, okay? It's not because it's structured very differently. Its purpose is very different. It is a general statement of faith. Some people would call it a creed. I'm more comfortable saying it's just a a statement of faith. It says, this is what we believe about these primary things. A catechism most of the time, though, asks and answers questions. What is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That would be from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Shorter Catechism mostly is for young people. It's just shorter, literally, less writing. The Longer Catechism is for those who are deeper in the faith. And so you have this group of standards coming out. And again, of course, we're still overseas. Now when we come to America, the first Presbyterian church is organized in 1789. That begins what we call the mainline group. The mainline Presbyterian church um, is founded. So what we basically have is coming off the Catholic church, you have the Lutheran church, and then as it makes this turn in Protestantism, you have this reformed branch. One of the biggest factors of that reformed branch is right here, the Presbyterian church, USA. And it's really important that you get that PCUSA, okay? Just I want you to remember that because it's going to come up a lot in the next few minutes. How many adherents do we have? Well, a lot of estimates are 40 to 50 million. I have seen as high as 75 million. There could be as many as 75 million Presbyterians worldwide. But again, like Anglicans or Episcopalians, we're about 2 million in the United States. Let me put that into perspective for you. Baptist would be into the tens of millions. Southern Baptists, 14 to 14 and a half million. Baptist into the multiplying tens of millions when you add up all the varieties. But you have somewhere in the United States about 2 million, and that's of multiple varieties. Let's talk about their view of Scripture. The historic view would be that Scripture is inspired and infallible, the sole and final rule of faith. And I'm going to write something right here. Okay, I'll come back to it. Here, oh, I don't need to write it. There it is. Here, the PC USA, as you see here, is saying, well, Scripture is actually the witness without parallel to Christ, but in merely human words, reflecting the beliefs of the time. Meaning a lot of scripture is culturally appropriated and so we can't actually bridge a gap and apply it today. This is beginning to happen with revisionist thinking on our constitution. Typically you fall into the camp of an originalist or you're a revisionist or some variant form thereof. The same is true with the Bible. Either you believe that all of it is God-breathed, all of it is profitable, correction, reproof, training in righteousness, all of those things. The man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Either you believe that or you believe it's actually a good witness to Christ. No other witness is better, but it actually reflected the belief of its time and it was mere human language. So this loses some of its authority. And there's a big, big difference between these two groups. 
But the same Protestant canons accepted 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. Let's talk about beliefs and let's see what we would agree with here. Do we believe that there's one creator and Lord of all existing eternally as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Yep, you better believe it. Look at all of these. Again, eternal Son incarnate, Jesus fully God, fully man, conceived and born of the Virgin Mary, died on the cross, rose bodily, ascended to heaven, will come again in glory. Big check on all of that. Yes, all of those fundamental beliefs on Christology are exactly the same. Now what about this? We are saved by grace alone. When God imputes to us his gift of righteousness, just he offers it, he gives it to us through faith alone, right, in Christ who died for our sins. I'm good with that. Yes, I know you can nuance and say, well, what about repentance and what about this? But this core belief of Presbyterians is the same. Good works, now this is a very important statement, good works are the inevitable result of true faith but in no way the basis of our right standing before God. Is that true or false? That's absolutely true. Biblically, good works follow genuine salvation, genuine conversion, but they are in no way the basis of our right standing. So at least on paper, we're tracking together so far. What about what happens when we die? The souls of believers upon dying go immediately to be with Christ. Do we believe that? I hope you believe that when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. At Christ's return, our material bodies are raised to immortal, eternal life. Do you believe that? I hope so. First Thessalonians 4, Paul is pretty clear there that that's what happens. And then what about this? The souls of the wicked begin suffering immediately in hell. There's no stopovers, no purgatory, no anything. Yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. All of those things are pretty much dead in line. Okay? So... According to the Presbyterian Church, the church is the body of Christ, including all whom God has chosen, that's an important word for Presbyterians, as his people, represented by the visible church, composed of churches that vary in purity and corruption. I probably wouldn't have written it that way, but I do agree that the real church the real church is made of men, women, boys, and girls, those who have placed their faith by grace through faith in Christ alone, who believe, who have surrendered to Christ, who have confessed to him. I do believe they represent the true church. I do believe some are closer and some are maybe farther away from walking in biblical truth, but I don't really have too much of a problem here. Uh, some of you are going to struggle with this word. I wouldn't let that bother you. Uh, John would say in John 6, that unless the Father draws, no one comes. The, Father, the Bible uses language like chosen, elect, those other things, but we'll, we'll unpack that a little more in just a moment. But do you believe in this statement? Christ alone is the head of the church. I hope you do. Now, why would they make this kind of statement? What, why would that be very different than the Anglican church? or the Catholic Church, or the Orthodox Church. Because you're talking about the Pope, or the King, or the head of the Church of Constantinople. And so Presbyterians are pretty strong at saying, no, Jesus Christ alone is the head of the Church. Now this is where we're going to begin to maybe differ a little bit. Some Baptist churches will do this. Some Baptist churches won't. 
Congregations choose elders to govern them. Um, Again, one of the issues I have, and we have some very good churches in our area that choose to be elder-governed or elder-ruled. We have elders here. Okay, don't let that wig you out. We have elders here, but they're called pastors. We choose not to confuse the terminology because the Bible uses pastor, elder, bishop, shepherd, overseer. Those terms, again, from the Greek to the English, those words are used very interchangeably, synonymously. Translators often will take one and translate it this way here and one and translate it this way here. You can actually find very clear language distinction between elders and pastors. And so, um, in some way, what we would say, and we tweak this, is that congregations choose elders to teach and govern and serve them or serve with them. But we would hold to congregational polity so that the governance of the church actually lays back into the hands of all of the actual members of the church. So this would be very different. This is why Presbyterian churches often have pastors appointed. Not unlike the Methodist church. Many, many times, some would be an anomaly, but most of the time, the, 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 the outside structure would appoint a pastor, and then the congregations aren't typically getting together for business conferences, uh, voting on budgets and things like that, okay? So what you have is regional groups of elders, presbyteries, meeting in denomination-wide general assemblies. Let me tell you how that differs from us. In a few weeks, we'll have the Southern Baptist Convention. Any active member of this church that is approved by the congregation to do so, as long as we don't go over our limit, can go and represent the church at a Southern Baptist Convention as a messenger of that church. I will be one, Cindy will be one, Mike and Jasmine, Jeff um, uh, and Desiree Lowe. We will represent you, but we're not, in this particular setting, it's the elders that do that. Again, it's a little bit of, of... I did that incorrectly. Hold on, I want to show you this a little better. It's a little bit of, you're going to choose sort of this model or uh, which would be a top-down. Now, they're going to say that Christ is the head, but then they're going to have the elders. That This is not very clear, but the E, the elders that are kind of going to push down and say what's going on versus the congregational polity that actually believes everybody that knows Jesus at this level, everybody that knows Jesus has a voice, has a say, because we can go to the Holy Spirit. We are led or guided by pastors. We're moved along, and we we pray that God will give them vision and mission to help lead us. But ultimately, the decisions more are, it's really inversed, bottom up versus top down. But It keeps, in the Presbyterian church, many, many decisions will be made outside of the local body and brought to the local body. In the more Baptistic style, you will have more decisions made within the local body that may may touch outside of the local body. We may cooperate with our local group, our state group, our national group, but that's by choice. The sacraments are this. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but is a sign of the new covenant of grace. I would be okay with all of that except this for adults and infants. You still have pedo baptism within the Presbyterian church. We would differ there. 
I have no problem with this statement. Jesus' body and blood are spiritually present to believers in the Lord's Supper. I don't want to get too deep into that, but it's essentially just that we believe this is a, a special spiritual exercise. Presbyterians would probably go just a slight bit further than we would about the presence of Christ in the Supper. But I really don't have any major hang-ups there. Now let's look at this, and then we're going to be done. i got two slides, and we're done. Beliefs and practices. Conservative Presbyterian, there are two major branches. Conservative Presbyterians typically affirm the five points of Calvinism. This group is known as PCA, Presbyterian Church America. can also be known as Reformed Presbyterian Church. Reformed Presbyterian Church has has united now with PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. That is not the mainline group. The mainline group is PCUSA. This stuff can get really confusing, but I'm going to show it to you on the next slide. What are the letters that we often use to teach these five points of Reformed theology or five points of Calvinism? What are the letters that correspond to one, two, three, four, five? Yeah. What does the T stand for? Total depravity. Humans are so sinful that they cannot initiate return to God, meaning that every part and piece of the human is dead, and dead people don't respond, so dead people don't come to God. I, I actually think that this is often misunderstood and mistaught, and I do not affirm the T in the Calvinistic sense of the T. The U. Anybody know what the U stands for? Unconditional election. Unconditional election, simply God chooses who will be saved. I do not affirm that in the way that most Calvinists teach it. L. Anybody know that one? Other than Pastor Frank. Limited atonement. Um, yeah, I absolutely vehemently deny this, although a lot of times my Reformed buddies want to play semantic games with me. And so Christ died specifically to save those whom God chose. No. Christ died to save whosoever will. Yes, they have been chosen. Yes, they've been elect. Yes, they've been called. I believe in all of that. I believe salvation is from God, A to Z, Alpha to Omega. However, I, I know that essentially a lot of guys are trying to say, yes, but it's only applicable. It's only effective for those who have been chosen who respond in faith, the chosen respond in faith, and it's only effective. But you get into some real strange territory, at least for me, with double predestination, because Calvin himself was a double predestinationist. John Calvin believed that God created some for salvation and others for damnation. Very few Presbyterians and very few Reformed theologians today, Reformed believers, believe that. Very few. But Calvin himself believed that God would purposefully create some to damnation. Didn't matter if they died as an infant. Didn't matter if they died in utero. That they were created. So that's double predestination. Most Reformed people today disavow that and believe in single predestination. But you still get some issues with the L. I don't particularly like the way that's often taught. What is the, uh, well, here's the I. God infallibly draws to Christ to those whom he chooses. That's irresistible grace. You cannot say no. If God's actually drawing you, you cannot say no. Again, I'm, I don't affirm this point simply because it would appear to me in Scripture there are those who genuinely have an opportunity 
that reject that opportunity. I also think this I does not harm the sovereignty or power of God. God can do anything he wants to do at any time he wants to do it, to any degree he wants. However, I do believe that when it comes to the irresistible grace, it would appear to me that that would obliterate the power of moral choice or the free will of man. And so I do believe the Bible teaches both the drawing, the choosing, the election, the predestination, the sovereignty of God, and simultaneously the free will of human beings. And so I struggle even with this I. There is one, though, that I actually affirm. So I'm a 1.5 point Calvinist. 1.5, that's why I don't call myself a Calvinist. Um, I'm one, one and a half-ish, if you've heard me teach this before. Um, they will never fall away. I do believe in the P, perseverance of the saints, or we would, would say as Baptists, once saved, always saved. I do believe once you're genuinely saved, you're forever sealed, that the Holy Spirit guarantees you until the day you see Jesus face to face. The problem, of course, is the problem of the four soils, and that three of four looked as though they were okay, but time proved otherwise. But one actually inevitably produced good fruit, more fruit, much fruit, and fruit that remains. And so I do believe in this P, although sometimes the definition of that can get even a little funny there. But that's a general explanation. Not all Presbyterians believe that. Not all Presbyterians fall within this conservative framework. In fact, it's interesting to know that of that uh, uh, two million in the U.S., about 1.7 of them are in the first category. And about 300K-ish, and again, it depends on what day you look at the statistics, are in the second. But they are two radically different groups. Seriously different. This is your main line. This was the predecessor, if you will. This is the one that um, is their conservative body, and you would find very little difference, very little difference between a conservative Presbyterian and a Southern Baptist. On almost everything, there's going to be alignment. Pedobaptism would be different. Oftentimes, the look and feel of worship would be a little bit different but you could walk into some PCA churches today, and if you didn't have the name on the church, you, you would likely not know that you weren't in a church just like Grace. And so there's a lot of similarities, so I want to be really careful. There is a major, major, major dividing line here. A similar major dividing line is in the Lutheran church. A similar major dividing line is in the Methodist church, and another one it looks like is coming a major dividing line is in the Southern Baptist Convention. From the Southern Baptist Convention to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, SBC, CBF, both Baptist, but very different in our understandings of things. And so if you've heard of um, Presbyterian Church going far, far, far left on social issues, if you've heard of that, then you're going to be talking about the Presbyterian Church USA, PCUSA. If you've heard of the church aligning much more to the right on social issues, life, gender, marriage, you're going to be talking about the PCA, which is uh, 3 to 350. It, it, it could have up to about 350 in America right now. But So um, 
very, very big dividing line. Okay, again, that is a, a massively wide brush. I'm going to do something I have not done yet because I have about five minutes before I want to close this down. Because a number of you had hands raised about the Presbyterian Church, and several of you knew some Anglicans or Episcopalians, I'm going to do something and take a chance. Do you have any questions related to either of these? Or, if you would like to go back to one of the groups I've already covered, let's not move ahead yet because we're going to get there, but if you would like to go back and ask anything at all about Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian, Give it to me. Any questions? Yep, in the very back. Is that Brother James? Yes, sir. Do it to me, James. All right. How did the Catholic Church come up with the idea of? I couldn't hear the last part. Oh, okay. Let's go back to that. All right, if you'll remember, when we talked about the Catholic Church, the question is, how did they come to the idea that tradition had equal validity to Scripture? Go back historically, and remember, nothing happens in a vacuum. What's going on? Let, let, let's go ahead to the, the birth of the more formal Catholic Church. Let's go past the 3rd century A.D. Let's go on and get into the 4th and 5th and 6th centuries A.D. when there was a lot of formality in the Roman Catholic Church, when Constantine had supposedly been converted and his mother, was Helen, was supposedly a big Christian and all this. If that's true, why did tradition take on such a massive role? Remember what's going on in the day. You do not have a literate populace. Number one, your populace generally cannot read. So you have an oral and aural tradition, speaking and hearing. That even is true in uh, some of the priesthood. And so what happens is, if I'm in a position where I'm given authority, the Pope, for instance, and I want to make a declaration that might benefit the church or benefit um, my bishop, my archbishops, my bishops, my priest, if I'm in that position of authority and you as the flock, as members of the parish, aren't able to read the Bible for yourself, then you are going to take the oral word and you are going to, to put that up with what I've read for you from the Bible. Plus, I can take the Bible, and if you don't have your own copy, which essentially no one did in those days, and only the church has access to the Word of God, you're going to take what I'm saying, and you're going to say, well, that has equal validity to what's here. Versus what I'm going to ask you to do, Brother James, and take this home and read it for yourself. And if I'm wrong, call me out on it. <laughs> because we should be people of the book. But if you can't read, it's hard to be people of the book. So as tradition developed, you had the big three Ps that always come into play. They always come into play. When, or the, well, I'll say the, the two Ps and the M. We'll, we'll keep it easy. I want to alliterate it. You have power. If I can say something that you believe is true, even if I can't find it in the Word of God, that, that increases my power. You have money. We'll just put it like that. You have um, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church being the wealthiest organization of its day for many, many, many centuries. And then, I'll, I'll use another P here, but I hope you understand what I mean, perversion. And that means that I can begin to twist and move things as I want. 
whether it has to do with actual you know, sexual perversion or just twisting Scripture like the selling of indulgences. Purely, purely a tradition of the church. Nothing in the Bible about selling forgiveness. That's an atrocious concept to Scripture. But, but tradition, when people do not have the ability to read and study and search for themselves, tradition can very quickly become balanced with Scripture or even outweigh Scripture. And so there are more reasons than that, Brother James, but in the historical context, a lot of Christian um, historians will tell us there was a lot of that happening, bubbling in the surface. There are other sociological things that were happening, um, particularly in Europe, in Italy, and, um, and throughout Europe in the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. But that's, that's a big part of it. Um, one, I have time for one more. Any other questions, any of these that we've covered, anything you've wanted to know that you've never asked, as long as it's within this context? I'm scared. Miss Sandy. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, you know. Um, so so I'll, I won't say the Presbyterians that believe. I'll just say generally Reformed people do want to acknowledge the free will of man, but because they start, let me start here, because they start in um, death, and they would look at Ephesians chapter 2 differently than I would. And they would say, well, look, it says right here that you were dead in trespasses and sins, and dead men can't make decisions. Ah, contrary, mi amigo. Adam and Eve were said to have died, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the day that you eat of the fruit of the garden of the good and evil, you will indeed surely, truly die, right? They were said to have died. Well, you and I understand that as a spiritual death, and yet God would still have expectations of them and expectations of their children to respond rightly to him even after their sin. And so while it's true that men are dead and a true five-point-plus Calvinist or Reformed person, be the Presbyterian or otherwise, would say, but you're dead, you can't do anything. They would argue that God has to initiate the work. And I would come back and retort and say, you're right. God does have to initiate the work. But God initiating the work does not abdicate your responsibility to receive what he's doing or reject what he was doing. I just struggle with any attempt to protect the sovereignty of God. And so the reality is I don't exactly know how you understand the free will of man if you're truly a five-pointer. I actually think it obliterates the free will of man if you hold it all. But I know I would have even good Calvinist friends, good Reformed friends that would say, no, of course we believe in the free will of man. I don't see it. I struggle with it. So what I like to say is that I'm neither Reformed nor am I fully Armenian that takes an opposite position that it all begins and ends with man. I do believe salvation is a work of God. I do believe it's an alpha omega work of God. I do believe that God calls us. That salvation doesn't happen unless God's doing the tugging. God's doing the pulling. God's doing the working. But it would appear to me that there are enough accounts in Scripture and there's enough language in Scripture that is choice language. If, then... If, then, conditional statements, both in the Old and the, New in Old and the New Testament. And so, I think 
the best way to deal with salvation when it comes to Reformation concepts is to be okay holding some things in tension. Be okay holding the fact that God chooses and we receive or reject. Be okay with that. Be okay with God is three, God is one. Be okay with that. And don't try. This feels to me like a system that's been put on the Bible. It feels that way to me. It always has. I don't know. We've had this. I think we've had this conversation. It feels like if I just have the Bible and the Holy Spirit, I don't land here. I don't land to Christ died specifically to save those whom God chose. I don't read that in the Bible. I read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, I, I can read Greek and that still means whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. I just have this sense in which there's this almost effort to protect the sovereignty of God. Now let me say, I fully appreciate much of Calvin's writing and I fully appreciate what Calvin was trying to do. He was trying, like Luther, to give a course correction to the church that, as James pointed out, had equated tradition, not even true, had put tradition over Scripture. Tradition was more important than Scripture. And so I wish I could answer your question better. I think we have trouble if we really hold all of this staunchly. I think you could hold this, some of these things lightly, and I certainly have very, very good Christian friends that land in this camp. I have great brothers and sisters that land here. I just struggle with a system that appears to me to be a more complicated reading of Scripture than it needs to be. I just have trouble with the way it's often explained. But I don't, I don't think that fully answered the question, but I do think it gets to the heart of the fact that I believe free will and God's election are both biblical. Okay. Thank you guys for being here tonight. I will um, pick back up when I can, and what we'll do is we'll go Methodist all the way to the end. We'll even get down to having some Pentecostal fun up in here. All right? So we'll come back. We'll get back. Stand with me. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into these things. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to see, particularly tonight, there's so many similarities in belief. There are many things we share with our Presbyterian friends particularly. But, God, also there are some differences. And, and uh, even for our Reformed brothers and sisters, uh, I understand that there's some really strongly held deep beliefs there. But there are times that we can come and say, you know, I'm going to see it like this. I do believe that salvation is a precious gift from your hand. And I do believe that um, it's important for us to know that we are not the only folks in the world that walk in truth with you. That folks with different labels and different looks may very well be our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to always always keep the main thing the main thing and never let culture or tradition or anything else supersede your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.